Hey everyone, welcome to the Reality 2.0 podcast. I am Katherine Druckmann and joining me as always is Doc Searles. And today we have a special guest, Bruce Schneier. He is a well-known security expert, a prolific author of many wonderful and easily digestible uh, books about security and I highly recommend. Um, and you know, one of the reasons we wanted Bruce on the show is you know, there's a lot of talk right now about contact tracing apps, as if it's some great savior that's going to rescue us from a pandemic. And, and I thought Bruce would be a pretty great person to ask about that. And then, Doc, I think, I think you, had, you had some other ideas, and I'll let you take yeah. it from there. Well, let's go down that uh, rabbit hole as far as it goes, because I think it's a, that's a huge one, and it's very relevant right now. Sure. What do you, yeah. uh, what do you want to, how do you want to do this? So, I mean, I can... I can I can start off a little bit. Just, I think that there is a sense that, you know, if only the tech giants would, would save us from this with these, you know, wonderful, innovative apps, then it would all just magically go away. I feel like I get that impression from people. But we have to have these contract tracing apps. And, and I think you've brought up in, in some writing and others have that, one, that, you know, there, there are several problems with that. And one is just that it, it won't be effective. And two, given the, the fact that it's not effective, uh, you know, how, how could it possibly worth all, be worth all the risks associated? You know, people could take advantage of it. It could be manipulated. There are privacy concerns. Um, I, I thought maybe you might... The privacy concerns? The, uh, we're already carrying cell phones in our pocket, which are pretty True. much the best surveillance device mankind has ever invented. <laughs> and I don't see anything much additional my complaint about contact tracing is that it's not effective. And you're right. We all want an app to solve this. I mean, apps solve so many things. It would be great if an app would, would solve this as well. And, you know, tech companies are stepping up, but I just don't see it working. So this actually is a basic security issue that whenever we have some sort of authentication system, we have to worry about two types of errors, false positives and false negatives. So you think an ATM machine, False positive is someone else uh, registers as me and they withdraw money from my account. False negative is I can't get my money out of my account. And both of those errors, they're different, but they're both important. So if you think of, of contact tracing, you could think about false positives and false negatives. So you have some definition of a contact. And let's say it's on a less than six feet for more than 10 minutes. Right? That's what it is. So the false positives rate is the percentage of contacts that don't result in viral transmissions. And you have them for a bunch of reasons. One, the app location and proximity systems aren't accurate enough. So this is GPS, this is Bluetooth. Uh, they both have high error rates. Uh, I play Pokemon Go, I see GPS error rates all the time. Bluetooth isn't really designed for this, so it's being hacked to make this work. Uh, second uh, area is that the app won't be aware of any extenuating circumstances. I could be less than six feet for someone for more than eight hours, and it could be because we're both sleeping in an apartment separated by a wall. They won't know if there's a glass partition. It's really bad at, uh, at the Z-axis. We could be on different floors. And, and the third is that not every contact is a transmission. We know a lot more about how this disease works, and it isn't a matter of standing next to somebody for 10 minutes. Are you speaking with each other? Are you wearing a mask? Are you indoors? Are you outdoors? What is the airflow? So there'll be a lot of, yeah. right? 
Yeah, what have you touched? You know, that's a, one of the biggest ways the transmission happens. And right. there's no so way to- all those things, the, 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 just the raw data of how close you are doesn't capture. So there'll mm. be a lot of contacts that don't have transmissions. Then go back to false negatives. So that's when the app doesn't register a contact and you get sick, right? So a lot of reasons for that. One, again, errors in location and proximity. Two, a lot of people won't have the app. And even Singapore had a 20% adoption rate before they abandoned their app. And again, further, not every transmission is a result of that precisely defined contact. We've probably all watched those animations of a sneeze transmitting way further than six feet over partitions in a a grocery store. So here I have, so I have this app with these two error rates. And my problem is, it doesn't give me any useful information. I go out, I come back, and the app says beep. Does that mean I have the disease? It doesn't. I go out, I come back, the app doesn't beep. Does that mean I don't have the disease? It doesn't. Should I quarantine myself? I don't know. I've, I, I can't get tested. So I haven't had anything useful the app has told me. And my worry is if we produce an app with all of these errors, you know, in a few days, people will be tweeting, the app doesn't work. I got sick. It didn't tell me. The app told me it got sick. I didn't. Suddenly, people don't trust the app. And trust is the most important thing we have in this pandemic. And the fact that it's so low is, is making our response harder. You can't make it worse. So I think there's too many sources of error for the app to be reliable. But Bruce, did we... so? The two cases I remember early on uh, in favor of contact tracing were China and Korea. Uh, the, the, the China case is one where infinite surveillance and minimal pr- privacy were, were features um, rather than bugs in their system. In the Korean case, there was, the app was kind of this fun thing where everybody's sort of keeping track of everything and reporting on everything. And I don't know, I've hardly heard of either of those since then. I'm wondering how well they actually worked or if they did. So Korea did a great job with manual contact tracing. I mean, contact tracing is important, but you actually need to talk to people. It's a, it's a human trust issue. It's not something mm-hmm. you do with an app. Uh, lots of ways to, to design the app. The, the Apple uh, Google system preserves privacy to a great degree. The Singapore app did less so. I mean, we can build different privacy protections into the app. You know, I think it's important, but I don't think I, w- I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over it. These are extraordinary times and making these extraordinary trade-offs are reasonable as long as we can back off for them after the uh, pandemic is over. But my worry is more that I'm not getting the value that's been promised. And while I can understand that, that you know, little explanation I gave is a pretty complicated one. Mm-hmm. And most, for most people will be, well, this app doesn't work. I can't trust it. And then we're, we're much worse off. Really what we need, I mean, where I want tech to solve this, I need ubiquitous, cheap, fast, accurate testing. That's what I need. Give yeah. me that and we can do a lot of things. Without that, you really can't do anything. I think I agree there. Uh, though I, I'm concerned with one thing that you mentioned is that it's, as long as we uh, can sort of put it away when we're done. And I think I, I'm a little bit concerned that we can't. And I, I followed a little bit of... Anyway, you'll, I mean, Google already knows every place you go, where you live, where you work, when you wake up, Absolutely, when you go to sleep, yeah. who you sleep with. 
I mean, the, the <laughs> app true. already doing that level of surveillance. A little bit extra for contact tracing. Yeah, perhaps it's not even. Except that it perhaps correlates health data. Health data is a a, a separate issue. Yeah. That's a very different sort of question. And really what we're talking about is, I think, a very very defining issue of this century. And that is data in the group interest versus data in the self-interest. So right now, I use Google Maps. Google Maps gets me where I'm going faster because it knows traffic patterns because everybody using Google Apps is under surveillance. That's a trade-off. There's group value in putting all of our car driving data in real time in a database, yet it's very personal. These contact tracing apps are another trade-off. There's value in knowing where the contacts are, yet it's invasive. So you're talking about yet a third issue. I think there's real value for humanity of putting all of our medical data in one big database and letting researchers add it. I bet the benefits can't even be comprehended at this point. Yet, yikes. Yeah. How do we balance? Ad tech is the same thing, right? Give me all your data and you get free email and free web search and free this and free that. So how do we balance these? It's, it's going to be different in each application. And for driving data, I can make this up, right? Your data is only good for 10 minutes. You only need one out of every 10 cars, and we can anonymize it. Done. Solved. Mm-hmm. For medical data, you can't do that. So we're going to put it in a very well-regulated database, require you to submit your research questions and queries in advance. We'll use differential privacy to give you results. All right, very different answer, but problem solved. You know, this question, I think, is important for us as society because there is group value to all of these issues, yet it's very personal. And we haven't really made these uh, decisions consciously. We've kind of allowed corporations to sort of do whatever they want. But deliberately deciding when the data's value in the group interest trumps the value in the self-interest and when it doesn't and how to balance the two I think we'll be doing that for the next couple of decades. So uh, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I, this may be too general, but I think it's sort of my perspective on all of this, Bruce, to some degree is partly that the older I get, the earlier it seems. I, I feel like, like balancing all the things you were talking about uh, is hard in part because we were suddenly graced with all these capabilities, all these digital capabilities, and it's kind of like maybe when humans first found fire or the wheel or something like that, and anything could be done with it. And after a while, they figure out what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. And, and what do you do under different circumstances? But we don't, we don't have that yet. We, you know, I, I, for privacy, we invented clothing and shelter. Those are privacy technologies and norms for respecting them with other people. But here online, we basically, you know, between Google and mostly, mostly Google, but also Facebook and other large companies with which we've made, I think to some degree consciously, Faustian bargains with for, for using their things that, that allow them to know a great deal about us for purposes that we don't entirely see and even they don't entirely see. And we haven't worked out the norms for that yet or the laws that would follow the norms uh, today is the second anniversary of uh, the enforcement of the GDPR. And with that too, I mean, here we have a, a regulatory um, approach that in many ways has much 
the, the most obvious outcome of it are these endless gauntlets we have to go through at the face of every, in front of every website to consent to exactly what the GDPR was meant to prevent. You know, and we, you made the point that this is an example of the law being hacked. That in fact, oh, good. Yeah. systems are designed not to comply with the law, but to not comply with the law in a way that is compliant with the law. If, if, you, if you can... Yeah, it's like they're all about obeying the letter, but not the spirit of the law. That's right. You know, you look up GDPR plus compliance, you get about 200 million results, and all of them are from firms that are going to sell on a B2B basis to a company ways to, to subvert and avoid, to but hack the, the GDPR, to totally hack the GDPR. That's right. Well, this gets us to a related subject that you and I have talked about before, and I'll share with the audience. I'm very intrigued by what Bruce has been thinking out loud among his cohort, which I'm in, the notion that hacking, which is dear, I think, to our, our listenership here, is in fact almost like a, it's part of the way humans work, and it's the way that we change, invent change and improve systems, that all systems can be hacked, and all systems are improved, if they do improve, to some degree by hacking. And, and I've, I've started thinking even just today that Hacking is basically how we get along in the world on a more or less constant basis. And so I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit, Bruce, because I'm sort of riffing off stuff that you said that just ricochets around in my skull. So This is something I've been thinking about for a while. I, at the RSA conference this year, I gave a talk about it in very mm-hmm. preliminary stages, and it's really evolved a lot since then. And I'm really trying to extend the notion of hacking to broader social systems. So the example I used uh, at the RSA conference is the tax code, which is really interesting because the tax code is code. It's an algorithm. You give it a bunch of inputs, your financial history, and you have an output, which is how much money you owe. And like any algorithm, it's going to have bugs. It's going to have vulnerabilities. We call those vulnerabilities tax loopholes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has exploits. Those are tax avoidance strategies. (laughs) <laughs> it has uh, black hat hackers, we call them tax attorneys, whose job it is to find uh, exploitable vulnerabilities for their customers. Uh, we can patch a tax code, it's called passing new laws. And you can use the entire hacking metaphor onto the tax code. And if you extend it further, you can use it when you think about market, the market economy or our political system. Or how, you know, how we uh, pass laws, how we choose our leaders. We can talk about hacking democracy. And you will see these articles with headlines of Facebook hacks our attention. That, mm-hmm. uh, that in the 80s, uh, Na- uh, the director at NASA hacked the government to have missions faster and better. That in the Obama administration, people hacked bureaucracy to get things done. We kind of have an intuition of what this means. And I'd like to formalize that somewhat and to think about hacking these systems, you know, both as a, uh, a method of subverting their intent, like you mentioned GDPR, but also as a method of improving and, and letting those systems evolve. And this is a human thing. And as we move into this world of, of, fast-paced tech change and then fast-paced social change due to tech change, that this notion of hacking will become more important. So, so actually, this, 
there's a nice kind of dovetail here between the hacking and, and the contact tracing, because there's you link to an article uh, from the Brookings Institute that meant, goes into some concerns I think that are interesting about you know the consequences of contact tracing and its inaccuracy, but it's all, also its ability to be manipulated. But it, in particular, they talk about the possibility for people to be labeled as pariahs, blocked entrance to uh, activities, public spaces and whatnot falsely, you know, especially which might impact more vulnerable communities disproportionately. But I think it kind of, it, it's an interesting uh, dovetail with the hacking conversation because inevitably if, if those things came about, if I, if, if I am a person who is negatively impacted by this, won't I just find a way to hack the system and I'll, I'll figure a way to, to false, falsify my information in order to get access to whatever I want. But maybe that's only, you know, a select few who would be able to and, and then the vulnerable population gets left behind. It, it, it's, it's an interesting, I think, issue that they raised. Yeah, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Uh, fake driver's licenses. So I don't think it'll be uh, contact tracing where this happens, but there is talk about some form of immunity passport, mm -hmm. some app, something on your phone, a card, a wristband, something that says, I've had the disease, you can let me in the restaurant, you can let yeah. me in the store, into the concert, into the club. And that's that kind of that have and have not tier. Now, right, I mean, we have that already, driver's license drinking, there's an enormous amount of effort spent trying to fake driver's licenses when you're underage. So I think we know how to do this pretty well. I mean, yeah, we're not going to be perfect, but my guess is it'll be pretty good. I think we have to decide as a society, do we want that kind of tiering? That kind of, you know, people allowed and people not. That feels like a very social question. It's pretty scary, but I don't know. Right, but, but, but I think we can Depends get on the, con the consequences. Right. Depends on the consequences. Depends on the venue. Depends on what we're doing. But I think we can get the tech to mostly work for that. Because, you know, driver's license as, uh, as proof of age documents, which is mm -hmm. really primarily what they are these days, yeah. works pretty well. And, and we, we seem to do that. It's interesting. There's a, uh, there's a whole um, hacking discipline, you might say, uh, around SSI, which could stand for self-sovereign identity. That's where it started. It could stand for a lot of other things. But the whole idea is that... Um, pretty much everything we do when we identify ourselves in particular ways are what they're calling verifiable claims or verifiable credentials. And, and that in an abstract way, um, immunity passports is a terrible name for what we're talking about here is basically you just want to, you want to be able to um, have the fact that you've had this, that you can make a verifiable claim that you are immune um, to be useful to you. But, the socialist side of this is we don't want a caste system in which, which is completely manifest out in the world where there are the privileged that are already, in, you know, that have survived this infection and the, and, the, uh, and the unprivileged who haven't. And other pandemics will come along and, and I suppose there's a way of preparing for them. But do we want to go through the world with a portfolio of our uh, of being turned inside out where there's a portfolio of, of health characteristics that may have social implications well, that we I, I carry expose. i mean when i used to travel a uh, a yellow document and i forget where i got it but some health organization in the united states which does does have list all of my uh, list your immunities right, right. And, my the, and there are countries where i on demand have to show that i've gotten a yellow yeah. 
So, you know, we have examples yeah. of this. And in fact, if you've gone through the disease, you do have something that someone else doesn't have. And if you personally have gone through the disease, actually might be more likely to invite you over. So, I mean, yes, it's going to divide into haves and have nots, but those aren't artificial divisions. And the question is, as a society, is this useful? Does a restaurant want to say, you know, COVID survivors only? Yeah. yeah. I I mean, I don't know the answer, but it's not an obvious answer. No. Right. Nothing is obvious anymore. Well, yeah, that's true too. But I mean, part of the problem with that is that there are too many conditionalities involved. It gets back to your criticism of um, contact tracing in the first place, where there there are so many possible considerations, so many contingencies, conditionalities, and the rest of it, that it's impossible for the thing to work effectively at all. Quite aside from the fact that whether or not it might be accurate. It'll work okay. So so now now the question is, how good is the antibody test? And then how how good is the security? Because remember, false positives, false negatives. And I want to get into the club. There are two ways that fails. One is, mm-hmm. right, I have the disease or I, or I, and I get in. And the second is I, I'm immune and I'm not allowed in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, both of those are real failures. And now we have to look at the efficacy of our testing system, of our credentialing system, of our credential verification system. The same thing we have for uh, driver's licenses. You know, it proves that I'm 18 or I guess 21. Uh, so what, is, what are the breeder documents from which the government knows my true age? Uh, how unforgeable is the piece of plastic I'm given? And, you know, mm. and how much is the uh, door guard at the bar paying attention? So it's the same thing in a different application. So you use the term we a number of times that we all, we all do that. We in the largest sense, we among the three of us at the moment. Um, who are those? I mean, it's, it's, I think there are a couple of, of, of uh, groups. One is hackers themselves. I mean, that's a lot of our, our listeners here. Uh, and there are an awful lot of people, I think, listening to this who, who are in a position to actually do something technically. Uh, but there's also lawmakers, you know, and I'm, I'm haunted by something that um, Michael Powell, uh, the former FCC chairman, said a long time ago, he had just recently resigned as the FCC chairman. We were talking about net neutrality, a small group of us with him. And, and he said, well, here's the thing. I've met with almost everybody in Congress, and I can tell you almost to the person, there are two things none of them knows. One is technology and the other is economics. Good luck. And so, and I worry about that. I think that's part of what happened with the GDPR. I, I I think sometimes a new law protects yesterday from last Thursday. I think the GDPR protects 2015 from 2012 in ways that, that are with us probably for the next 20, 30 years. So I'm wondering how, how we get, who is the we and how do we make this happen? And I mentioned, it may not be an answerable question, but I'm wondering in your mind when you say we or we as a society, who's that? Yeah, I do mean us as a society and you bring up, I think, a, an important point in our field pretty much writ large, is that the mm. people who we entrust to regulate our systems, our tech, don't understand it. Now, there's got to be an answer to this. I mean, already <laughs> the people in Congress don't understand what they're regulating, whether it's food production or pharmaceuticals or airplane safety or trade issues. 
I mean, they're, they're forever passing laws in areas that are not in their expertise. And, yeah. and, and so we have systems for this. It's, it's members of their staff who know things. It's people who come in and talk to them. And tech shouldn't be different. I think it is mm. different primarily because of a generational gap, which will close itself in, in 20 years. I mean, it's annoying to be patient, but I actually think that when the older people start dying off, the younger ones will be much more intuitive about, about tech. But, mm. you know, we, we are a very technological society and a lot of our laws are more complex than the expertise of the people debating them and voting on them. So I need a general solution. It can't just be for, uh, for privacy or data or even IT. It's mm. got to include things like GMOs and robotics and future of work and monetary policy and, every, and, and everything. But I, I think this is a, a big issue, that how do we get the tech expertise into the minds of the people who need it in a way that doesn't, and I think a lot, I wrote this in my last book. When I think about the way it should work, I think about Picard's ready room. You remember what, what happened on Star Trek? He calls people into his ready room. He asked them what's going on. They'd all speak like tech at him. And he wouldn't debate it. He wouldn't deny it. He wouldn't demand alternate science. He would say, okay, I get it. Here's what we're going to do. I want that to happen. I want there to be tech-informed policy by policymakers accepting the tech and not fighting it and not denying it. We don't have that right now. I think we could. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. So we have tech wag wag politics to the other way around. So so I'm I'm seeing a gate between tech expertise and lawmaking that you've seen a lot more than I have. You get the call from the Senator's office. Can you please talk, you know, as for a staffer, please talk to our staff. Um, and I've only had this happen to me a couple times, but I, in both cases, I did not have the sense when it was over that it made any difference at all. But I'm wondering, you must get many, many, many more calls than that. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of what gets through and how, and if that can be hacked, because that's where I'm going with this. It's like, if this isn't working quite right, maybe there's a hack here uh, on the system as it now stands. Yeah, I want to have it. So this is another thing I've been thinking about a lot, and it's public interest technology. Mm -hmm. Can we steer technology to the public interest? Now, we have examples of this working. There is a program called Tech Congress that Mm. puts technologists on legislative staffs in Washington. And uh-huh. there are I mean, maybe a dozen of them right now, and they're doing an enormous amount of good. So is this like, we should put it in a link, Tech Congress is called? Yeah, I'll, I'll send oh. information. Yeah. And, you know, it is a great program. Hmm. Now, we need lots of this. I mean, you, you know, we, we both know people who have been chief technology officers at the Federal uh, Trade Commission. Yeah. It, yeah. So, so there are ways we're trying to make this work. Uh, you're right. I mean, I've done a lot of briefing to staffers, and some of it's good and some of it's not. Uh, you know, as technologists, we tend not to understand how policy works. Mm. Confusing, it's annoying, it seems irrational. But that's okay because policymakers feel the same way about us. Mm. And this is really a matter of trying to bridge very different worlds. 
And this isn't new, right? In 1959, C.P. Snow wrote a great essay called The, the Two, Two Cultures. Cultures. Yeah. <laughs> the same damn problem. Yeah. And, but, you know, back then, it was kind of okay that they were separate because they didn't interact that much. Right? It was the yeah. space program. It was the nuclear program. It wasn't the device that's in your pocket sending you phone calls. But he had that same complaint about these two traditions that would talk past each other. And we really need to figure out how to bridge this gap. You know, and it's Washington Silicon Valley, you'll hear it talked about. And both sides don't trust the other side. Both sides think the other side is lying, is disingenuous. I mean, think of the going dark debate, right? And uh, about backdoors and iPhones. Mm -hmm. And that is the exact same problem. Policymakers not understanding the tech and techies not understanding the policy. The solution is going to be where both sides understand each other and build policy that takes the tech into account. I mean, I'm a big fan of giving the FBI actual digital forensic capabilities. The reason they want your iPhone because they don't understand how much data is available that can help them solve crimes. They don't have the digital forensics. All they have mm. is open the phone. Yeah. And if we want phones to be secure, and there are a lot of security reasons why we do, we can't ignore the, that the FBI needs to be able to solve crimes. So how can we build both security into our devices and give law enforcement tech tools to do digital forensics? We kind of have to do that. Do you have yeah. an answer for that? I yeah, mean, what, how, how do those do, coexist? Do you want the back door or do you want that? Or maybe it's not a back door or maybe it's some other contraption. Yeah, what is know, that? Back doors and contraptions are all dumb. I mean, the, the problem is sort of fundamentally that law enforcement has a myopic view of the issue. They see the phone as a source of evidence. When in fact, the phone is, turns out to be a piece of national critical infrastructure because it's in the pocket of every single lawmaker and government official and judge and police officer and CEO and nuclear power plant operator and election official. That having those things insecure would be crazy simply because mm. they are so important to national security. I mean, Barr makes the point, Attorney General, in one of his speeches that, no, no, we don't want backdoors in, in critical tech. We just want it in consumer tech. But consumer tech is critical tech. Mm -hmm. but there's no difference anymore. So we have to make our systems as secure as possible. That's clear for national security. But you know, I know, there's so much surveillance data that's being collected by corporations, by systems that already exists that yeah. could be used for crime solving. But it's again, a this phone knows everywhere I've been because that's how it rings when someone wants to call me. It is part of the system. So what I want is to build up the FBI's capability in digital forensics, like in fingerprinting, like in tire tracks, like in DNA testing, like any of their other tech capabilities so they, so they don't need to get into the phone. They can do other things. Now, we, we see FBI hacking in uh, Pensacola. They eventually hacked into the phone. 
They didn't have to make it insecure. And mm-hmm. so there are lots of things we can do if we can get the FBI to abandon, make all phones ins- insecure. That's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. But there's a, exactly. I think there's a lot we can do, but it has to start from the tech realities of what a backdoor means, how it works, when is it good, when isn't it? And there's a lot of, I think, talking past each other, even you know, when I give lectures on this. We're not really talking to each other. So, if it, I mean, is it really, are personal devices really that secure to begin with? I mean, some of them may be. I guess if you have the latest model and it's, you know, computer. I mean, if they can hack into it any, anyway, is it all that secure? I mean, maybe that's a whole other conversation, but you know, I, I don't know. I just wonder, I, we've, we've talked in the past about how, you know, a cell phone is the most intimate thing you have. It knows everything about you. It knows you better than you know yourself. You know, it's it's... I think you even said in one of your books, it's the next, or is it, that was search history. It's the next best thing to having access to your brain, which is frightening. Which is basically true, right? Google knows what kind of porn everybody likes. Yep. I mean, yep. It's just the way it is. I mean, are they secure? I mean, they're okay. I mean, I think the, the way to tell best is to look at the market for zero days. But there is now a robust market for zero days in operating systems, uh, both fixed and mobile. And, you know, how much a company will pay for an exploitable iPhone zero day is like a million, a couple of million dollars. That says something. Now, they're not perfect. There are insecurities. We know that we can't design secure systems. We're doing our best. Uh, They're good. They get better all the time. But we we have to make them as good as possible. I guess what I'm getting at is, is is the FBI really that good or is the phone just not that secure? Not the FBI is good, that the FBI has budget. Mm. And they go to third parties that build uh, exploit systems for law enforcement. We right. hope mm-hmm. they sell it Probably only what these we like. It turns out usually not to be true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not that the FBI has, and, and this has been a, a tech transfer for the past 30 years. The government doesn't have the expertise anymore. They buy it. Yeah, they hire the, some Israelis, right? <laughs> Typically, yeah. in some cases, Israeli companies because the the you know the, the laws and morals are a little looser there. But it's mm-hmm. also companies in Germany and Italy and the UK in the US that that are uh, building these tools. And you know, I, and we we're probably okay with them if they are used properly. And we're like we're not okay with them when the government of Kazakhstan uses them to spy on dissidents. Mm-hmm. But now, so but that is another question about uh, international trafficking in arms and whether these devices count as restricted items and how we should restrict them. I mean, do we want the government of Saudi Arabia to be able to buy uh, an exploit that allows them to drop a, uh, a Trojan onto Jeff Bezos's phone or whoever else? Right. That, yeah, that's actually a really good point. I, you know, I've thought for a while that, that the cell phone, again, being so personal and, and with you everywhere is such a really good uh opera well bad depending on your perspective opportunity yeah. for a vulnerability like if you really want to get somebody take over their phone that's true and you will learn everything yeah our phone- or, or will you learn everything or can you in fact even manipulate what's on the the phone to to you know tell your own narrative or you know fishing it yeah. whatever it is supposed to too lazy to do that i mean honestly yeah. i'm not gonna have a phone which i'm gonna seed with a fake persona that's way that's like that's like way too much work Right, right. I'm going to search what I search and call who I call and message who I message and email who I email and go where I go. 
I mean, yes. I meant it more in terms of uh, accessing files and, and, you know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you are a national intelligence organization, you probably have a program for giving phones fake backstories. Yeah. Because you've, you've lost all your ability to have, uh, to have give agents uh, fake histories. Because, like, why weren't they on Zongo when they were seven? Like everybody yeah, that's else. a good so, point, yeah. Right? So, so given that, I'm sure we're working on sort of new ways to do something similar. But that is very much beyond the reach of us. Sure, sure, sure. Not a consumer <laughs> capability. We could continue on this, but there's a, um, something that interests me in, at this moment. Because it's kind of like... In, in the midst of the pandemic that we're in right now, it's like a, a reset button got pushed or the giant three-dimensional chessboard that was reality got turned over and it's a whole different bunch of games now. And I like to look downstream at consequences of consequences and where these go. And there's one particular area I wanted to ask you about, <clears throat> a, little, a little bit security related in the sense that uh, you created this term security theater that became uh, a meme in the world. And and also defended it. I mean, you meant that you have a wonderful way of looking at both sides of everything. But it's travel. You, you and I both travel a lot. I mean, and live in multiple places. I, I, I say, you, you, I first met you in Minneapolis, where you lived at the time, um, at Mini WebCon, which is a thing then. We both spoke there one after the other. Um, but we've both been in Boston. I live in New York and Santa Barbara. I'm in Santa Barbara now. Um, I have a million and a half miles with United alone. Um, and I seriously wonder if I'm ever going to travel again. I, I really wonder this, you know, what's, and I'm wondering where, if you're looking downstream with that and seeing not just where that goes in a general sense, but how the systems that are going to have to hack themselves and have to be hacked in order to work in a future where none of the companies in that business now are going to be in exactly the same business because the whole thing got sphinctered down to almost nothing for a couple months. And it's going to be more than a couple of months. I, I, I yeah. don't see an easy way out of this. I've been thinking about that a lot. I think we don't know. I think we are in the midst of a, a system reset that we've seen three other times in the history of this country. It's the American Revolution, the American Civil War, and the Great Depression slash World War II. I think things are going to change in ways we cannot predict. And, you know, we are learning the, uh, the effects of an economic system that squeezes all redundancy out of itself in the name of profit. It turns out redundancy is very valuable for security. I mean, you mm -hmm. build for-profit hospitals for normal times. You don't have any excess capability for abnormal times. Uh, travel, uh, restaurants, I mean, a lot of things I used to do all the time. Uh, you know, I traveled about 280,000 miles a year. My average speed last year was 36 miles an hour. Mm. Wow. And that's all gone away. <laughs> you know, some of it will come back. I think airplanes are safer because of the way air is circulated. We have a much more sophisticated view of the disease right now. You know, a couple months ago, it was things like less than six feet, more than 10 minutes. Now it's about a uh, number of particles in the air and the way the air flows and, and how long you're in an environment and there's some kind of level of toxicity. We're much more sophisticated. And I can easily imagine airplanes, which already do an amazing amount of air circulation, amping that up more 
back to the levels when people were smoking on planes needed to really filter out the air. Uh, airports will change. I mean, I, I'm seeing reading essays about restaurants in Hong Kong with plastic partitions between the, the tables, which sounds awful, but you know, maybe that's the future. Things are going to be real different. But yes, I mean, I'm in Minneapolis now thinking about how do I get back to Cambridge for the fall Harvard semester, assuming there is going to be one, because dorm rooms are basically cruise ships that don't move. That's a really good analogy. way of putting it. Yeah. Wow. You know, and, and wondering how any of this is going to, to work. And I, I taught a class that was 60 people in a room. You could fit 20 people in that room under the, the six feet rule. But how are they going to get in and out? I mean, there's just so many things that have to be rethought. And a lot of this depends on how fast we can get a a vaccine and how long the vaccine lasts for. Yeah. Is is an inoculation a durable thing or not? There's no way to know. There's a lot lot of unknowns. But really, you know, we are, unemployment is, is a crazy number. Uh, we seem to be in the United States. Uh, I mean, uh, like in 2008, we basically sacrificed the middle class to the millionaires after that crisis. This looks like the crisis where we sacrificed the millionaires to the billionaires. And that worries me. Mm. I think the people who are going to left, left holding the bag are the landlords. And, oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. yeah but I, I know a number of those, and we're one of those, too. I, I, I'm like, one of those. <laughs> but yeah. there really is no more unsympathetic group than landlord. Nobody wants to like, be nice to the landlords. Well, depends on the scale but, you know, of the landlord. A lot of the, the bailouts are going to the, the billionaires and the companies. They're not going to the unemployed. Now, that can't sustain. So things are going to change to an enormous degree. I don't know how. But we're yeah. really seeing the results of, of, uh, of neoliberalism, of the market gets to figure out what to do. Because the market isn't designed for this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is a collective or... action problem. Markets don't solve collective action problems. They don't. Now, that's fine. They're not supposed to. But we do have collective action problems that need solving once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, uh, or, or if they, it, or the solution is simply, all oh, you over there, you go die, <laughs> and yeah. and that that's fine. That's just a that's a collateral casualty of the market doing what it does. I think at the uh, beginning of there this, there are going to be a lot of people dying. I mean, uh, what of our we our goals here in spreading out the curve are, are twofold. I mean, one is to make sure that when you get sick, there's a hospital bed for you if you need it. So for, yeah. if that's the only thing that doesn't change the number of people getting sick. And right? that might yeah. change the death rate because there's better care. And then if we delay people getting sick, we have we know more about treatments and we do already. And like we know like ventilators are overly prescribed. And mm. they actually did harm in many circumstances. So we know a lot more about how to treat someone who's sick. And if we delay long enough, they'll be actually preventive systems. Yeah. Yeah. The most important one being a vaccine. Right. So, you know, you sort of look at that, you know, we can't remain close for two years. That's just not possible. There's going to be a point where we say, okay, you know, you're going to get sick anyway. We can't stop it. We're just going to try to keep the the rate down to a low boil so that the hospital bed's there for you. Yeah. It depends a lot on the models on 
how the disease spreads that we're still learning. I mean, the hard part about this is it's that, the, yes, it's about risk, but there's an enormous amount that is uncertainty. And we actually mm. don't know the data to calculate the risk. And that makes this doubly hard. Wow. Yeah, well, I'm depressed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not... Stay home. Yeah, I'm not depressed. Yeah, I mean, well, what I'm doing. Well, it, it's, you know, what we're doing here. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm in a demographic where, depending on what numbers you're looking at, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a gun with, uh, you know, the Russian roulette I'm playing is one, one bullet in a 10-chamber gun, you know. But, and that uh, depends a lot on, on other factors. We're yeah, I know. That people who actually die, uh, it, it's racially biased, so access to, to health care not just now, but through your life mattered a yeah, lot. Yeah, right. Whether right. you have a high blood pressure, whether you are obese, whether you have, uh, you know, it, lots of comorbidity factors. Right. Uh, play here. You know, like, and, and different, Germany has a better survival rate than the United States does. I mean, in 10 years, we'll probably understand why, but it, yeah. now it's a weird <laughs> fact. But there's going to be something about the lifestyle, the healthcare, the environment that made a difference. I mean, smokers have a better survival rate. Yeah, annoying that's, everybody, that's <laughs> but they do. Yeah, what's interesting is I feel like at the beginning of this or earlier in this, I was a little bit more optimistic about our not not about the the approach to the disease, but but um, the opportunity for human ingenuity and, and and sort of redefining how we live our lives. And I feel like with time, I'm getting less optimistic about. Oh, uh, I think we will. Uh, I think we're doing a lot. And we will figure, I mean, you know, we can't imagine going to like arena rock concerts anytime in the next decade that that might be true, but there will be other things that we'll do. It's not yeah. the, I, I think we will figure it out. It's I, the I, end of the mosh pit. The end of the mosh pit. That's okay. I'm a little old for a mosh pit. Right. And, and, yeah, and the, everyone has their own comfort level, right? So different yeah. groups of people will adapt, I think, in different ways. Yeah. But be careful. I mean, the, the, one of the problems is not like skydiving. <laughs> I know my risk. I'll decide whether I do it or not. The question yeah. is, you know, uh, uh, will you take other people with you when you skydive? Yeah, and, and your decisions affect others. Yeah. That's what makes this hard. If it just affected you, we could treat it like any kind of high-risk personal activity. Right. Yeah. But if yeah. you decide to open up your barbershop, you can infect 100 people and you could – you could spark a, you know, a huge spike in the disease and that would harm lots of people. And that's why this is not sort of a, a question about freedom and liberty and do what you want. This really is society deciding. So yeah. not to, not to <laughs> take it too long as we always do, but I think you might be a really great person to answer the problem of um, there, there seems to be a political, a, a political divide between the way people digest information. Um, people are inherently suspect, or some people are inherently suspect of their information sources. They don't, you know, there are people who just flat out don't believe it. They don't understand that they need to wear a mask. And I wonder if, if you can kind of put a security and technology hat on and figure out a way to address that. Is that even possible? I think it's bigger than security. I mean, this is the result of decades of political division. And the fact that health has been politicized, that wearing a mask is a, is a matter of which political party you listen to is crazy. And, and I wish it wasn't so. 
but that's the world we're in. I don't think that there's not a tech solution here. We, we are seeing the problems of, of this, this kind of, of cultural political divide. And yes, it, it is very harmful. I mean, not just in, in health policy, but other areas as well. But now it's pretty obvious in health policy. And I don't think there is a tech solution. You know, well, I, I, I can't figure out why there's a political party in favor of more people dying or dying faster. Or, or, or presuming that certain media outlets, you know, want the economy to fail because they're advising you that certain activities are high risk. I mean, yeah. I, I don't understand it. I mean, maybe yeah. there's a, you know, I don't I, know. I, I have to say, I, I, and maybe we can, uh, maybe this will be helpful as we wind us down, it, is I'm actually very optimistic uh, at the moment, uh, in part because I think some things will work. And things that work are going to win in the long run because it's in everybody's interest that the things that work win. And I think it's going to be a very, it's all going to be in a tumbler. Um, it's not going to come out exactly like we all, any one of us think, but um, we are going to need systems. We're going to need ways that, that things work. They're, they're going to have to work politically. They're going to have to work technically. They're going to have to work emotionally. But I think, you know, we will come up with ways as, as the body of knowledge around this grows, as, as you were saying earlier, Bruce, um, you know, we, the larger we, learn more about this all the time that we didn't know before. That, and that's, all of those are going to inform a general knowledge that in the long run is going to play out as we're, you know, we're, when, you know we'll, we'll, we'll lick this thing in some ways and we'll have a different thing when we're done with it for preventing the next one. And this is the theory that, that truth wins because it actually conforms to reality. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> truth wins because it conforms to reality. Oh, that is a one-liner. <laughs> your view of true matches reality. Yeah. You're yeah. less likely to walk in front of a bus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, I think that's true, but what we're learning is things can diverge from reality a surprising degree before it gets that bad. And that's, right. in the that's true. And that's part, that's part of the social disease that, that is out there right now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. I think, I think, I think you've, you've nailed the ending. Thanks doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you okay. so much for this doing really great, this. Bruce. I think this was actually, yeah, really great information here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. It's been great, Bruce. Bye-bye.